Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. Today's episode is very, very good, as we're talking with an old friend of mine from China, Alvin Wong Graylin, who is now the China president of HTC, the developer of smart mobile, connected technology, and virtual reality products. Alvin is also the vice president of the Industry of Virtual Reality Alliance and the president of the Virtual Reality Venture Capital Alliance. He has almost three decades of business management experience in the tech industry, including 20 years in Greater China, beginning with the senior management position at Intel in 1993. Prior to HTC, Alvin was a serial entrepreneur, having founded four venture-backed startups in the mobile and internet spaces, covering mobile social, ad tech, search, AI, big data, and digital media. As you might expect, our conversation covers a lot of topics. We discuss China's consumer PC market in the early to mid-90s, founding and building companies like M-Info and Guanxi the social app, what internet marketing looked like in China 20 years ago, and of course, a lot of conversations around virtual reality, the metaverse, and the multiverse. Enjoy. The key to the Chinese government philosophy about foreign companies is they want to have technology transfer. Intel was actually very supportive of this. In fact, I had uh, hosted and, and, and was, I was translating for Andy Grove when he came visit a few times with some of the government officials. They really treated him as a dignitary. I mean, when he landed at the airport, they had essentially police behind and in front of him. They had all the lights turned green, so he never had to stop anywhere. He got very good treatment in terms of being respected as a leader. And in turn, uh, Intel actually built multiple assembly and test sites in the country. And I think for, for China, that was an important step to have a global leader in semiconductors building uh, and constructing things in their, in their country, as well as educating the workforce. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally-minded brand should ignore. But entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Alvin, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for coming on today. Thanks for inviting me, Todd. Uh, great to uh, be able to chat again. It's been so long. Yeah, you and I, we we go back, man, a long time, you know, early, I don't know, 2012s, 2013s kind of thing. Uh, so we have a lot to talk about and you've been in China for a long time. But, you know, as we usually do on the show, I'd love to get a bit of an introduction of yourself and that anecdotal story of how you ended up in China. Um. So I don't know if you know this, actually, but I, I was born in China. So I was born during the Cultural Revolution, right in the middle, in 1971. Oh, wow. And uh, in fact, I was born on a re-education camp. Both my parents were sent uh, to a farm to be re-educated because they were both... Uh, uh, my mom was a ballerina. Uh, she was one of the founders of uh, the, the Shanghai and the Guangzhou Ballet School and was used to be with the, uh, the Beijing Ballet Troupe. And then my, my dad was a professor of Western art at the Guangzhou uh, Art Academy. 
And so uh, both of those are very uh, counter-revolutionary <laughs> from their perspective. So uh, so they both got sent, and, and I was born while they were still uh, at, at the uh, re-education camp. And um, my first two years of life, I actually spent living in what used to be a chicken shit. So uh, just to give you a little little bit of context. Um, but I was very fortunate that because my mom is uh, half American, half Chinese, um, we were able to get uh, out of China in 1980, uh, kind of when the market first opened up, um, when then uh, Xiaoping kind of uh, allowed the openness of China and allow for, for immigration and so forth. So, uh, you know, I guess uh, very fortunate that we were able to get to the U.S. and get a U.S. education and and uh, kind of, um, my, in fact, my 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 dad when he uh, the first day we landed, he said, "Hey, look." You guys are very fortunate. We we sacrificed everything for you guys to come here. Uh, so make the most out of it. So he was talking to my brother and I. Uh, and uh, he said, you know, everybody has a a purpose in life. And you guys need to go find your purpose. Find what's going to make the most contribution to society and spend your time doing that. So uh, so that that's actually kind of that sentence kind of has been what's been driving me uh, the last, you know, 40 plus years. So. Yeah, I can definitely tell you took that to heart. You you've done some amazing things. Tell us a little bit about your your educational path as well, because you've you've made it through some of the the toughest systems out there. As I mentioned, because my parents said, like you know, we're we're artists, we don't have money. If you guys want to go to college, you have to uh, get your own scholarships and, and take care of yourself. So, uh, you know, given that kind of requirement. Uh, I studied very hard, you know, just like every other Asian kid that immigrates there. <laughs> and uh, well, pretty much after, I think, sixth grade, I, I you know, was straight A through all my classes, top of my class, and, you know, got multiple scholarships for undergrad, where I went to University of Washington, did my undergrad in double uh, E, and then uh, I think graduated top of my class there as well. Uh, you know, a few years later, I went to MIT and uh, did a double master's there also with a, um, a fellowship. Um, so I was able to get two masters, uh, both in uh, computer science and in an MBA, um, uh, you know, without having to pay any tuition. So, uh, very fortunate to go to, you know, two very good schools and, and study, you know, some very useful knowledge and, uh, connect with some very, uh, valuable people and smart people, uh, you know, through my academic career. So, uh, and, you know, this is, this is the reason why, uh, I guess my parents you know, asked us to come to or you know, brought us to the U.S. was to give us that opportunity to, to get a better education and have a more opportunity for life. In fact, my, my brother and I uh, both went to MIT. Uh, in fact, he, he got into Stanford for his uh, grad school. And I said, you should come to MIT because I'm over there. And so he applied and we, we were the first brother pair to uh, graduate the same year from Sloan. So uh, just a little uh, tidbit of uh, trivia. <laughs> For those, uh, I went to a little bit of engineering school for a while. For those that are the the uninitiated, EE or double E is uh, electrical engineering. Uh, just to put that put that out there, you started your early days in China, opening up Intel's office in Shanghai, and you were also helping build China's consumer PC market. So I want to start our discussion around that, and and I I believe if I'm not mistaken that that started circa 1994. So. First off, you can correct me if I'm wrong on the date. Secondly, tell us what you remember about those first days opening up that office for Intel in Shanghai. What kind of operation was that office for? What was the strategy of having an office there? And how did it go back in those days? 
Yeah, it, it was uh, definitely very different than the China of today. Uh, you know, back then we were uh, we were in Taojing. It was actually the beginning of the Taojing High Tech Park. It was essentially you know just a couple of buildings over there, and and uh, just getting a, a phone line took a month to apply for a landline just to make telephone calls. You know, not to mention you know broadband. There was no broadband, <laughs> um, and uh, you know hiring people was super tough because you know nobody wanted to. Uh, to, to work for a a, um, a foreign company, they, they prefer to work for the government, um, where you know it's just safer. Um, and you know it was uh, and, and you know it was very outside of the city at the time. You know now it's kind of already part of the main city, but back back then it was uh, probably about half hour to forty minutes away from the city. And uh, at that time there was no elevated highway, there was no uh, subway. You know there was essentially almost no pudon. <laughs> there was only one. One building, uh, which was the uh, Pearl Tower, during the Pearl Tower in Pudong uh, at the time. So um, very, very different, uh, you know, place. Um, and just, you know, it, it, you just felt like you, you went back in time, right? Because um, uh, we, we, we set up a both research and development um, facility as well as a sales and marketing facility uh, at the, at, in, in that office. And uh, when I got there, essentially, my uh, the GM of, of the Shanghai office said, "Look, you know, uh, you know, tell me what what you think you want to do, and uh, you know, write a little report about it, and then we'll we'll figure it out." Because uh, there's there was three of us that kind of came from the U.S. to come start this office, and I, I thought about it, and I was thinking, "Hey, you know, the 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 China consumer PC market was essentially non-existent. Right? The, the the PCs cost two thousand dollars." Which was, you know, multiple years of salary for people, <laughs> and uh, there was no English, no no Chinese software. Everything was in English. You know, there was the, all the stores that were selling it were selling IBM's and Compaq's, and you know, uh, it's like for B two B only, right? Um, but I knew that, you know, there 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 are so many consumers. There must be a consumer market out there. So I spent some time researching, and I found essentially there's three things that are blocking. This, this market from, from happening because there, there are tons of, of consumers in China. Um, and how can we get them into, you know, this new internet that's starting to happen and this multimedia trend that's starting to happen? Um, and, you know, one was getting the prices really way down. Uh, you know, two was helping to take all the content that was globally and try to localize it. And then three was to create um, low-end uh, consumer channels that were able to reach out to all the different, uh, you know, tier two, three, four, five cities that uh, did not have access to computer stores at all. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I was able to talk to headquarters to, to give us access to to be able to sell the chips uh, directly and to bring in some low-end uh, motherboards that we can have people create uh, kind of. Uh, uh, build it yourself type of, of uh, stores. Um, so I, I uh, you know, we, we, we got these kits together that people can put together these PCs for essentially by the time I left, they were about, you know, four or 500 US dollars coming down from about $2,000. Uh, I also went and met with all of the major, uh, Chinese manufacturers, people uh, like, uh, it used to be called Legend, now it's called Lenovo, a great wall, uh, founder, uh, Tantru. Um, which, uh, you know, Lenovo or Legend used to be number seven in the PC market in China. They had like a, the PC department was all it was. Um, in fact, the guy who's now the chairman and CEO 
I used to be the department manager <laughs> when I met with him. Uh, so Yang Yunqing, who's the, the head of, uh, of uh, Lenovo now, uh, I remember meeting him and they were like, eh, I'm not sure we, we should be doing these uh, consumer PCs. Um, but you know, three years later, they were the number one manufacturer of PCs in China and all built on selling consumer multimedia PCs. So which was exactly what I had uh, you know, requested them to do, gave them the whole, all the, the kind of blueprint for doing it and uh, getting, uh, you know, essentially bundling these PCs where uh, we put in a, 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 a CD player, which also could play a VCD with a video CD. And then we can have a little microphone jack so you can do your KTV from home. And, and we brought in all of these uh, foreign manufacturers or foreign software vendors and did matchmaking uh, operations with local software developers to help them localize all the content. And then we bundle the content into a CD with the, the chips that we were selling. Uh, so essentially the software became almost free because instead of charging $20 for a piece of software, they were, we were giving them a quarter or 10 cents US for software because they knew if they sold it to China, they would get zero anyway because everything would get pirated. So they might as well get a you know 25 cents per copy. So, so that was uh, really kind of an exciting time because you, we saw that from you know, the, the, the time I got there, uh, we were about $50 million in revenue for a consumer related sales and went to about 300 million, uh, within the three year period. So, uh, you know, I, I felt like I, I made a, a decent contribution to that, uh, that market. In fact, um, uh, you know, we also invested in a number of companies, including, um, uh, what's that? And Jing, Jing San Suba. So it's, um, uh, the guy, uh, who founded who founded uh, Xiaomi. Uh, he was one of the guys we had invested in, in terms of uh, content and gave him 50 you know, uh, PCs to do development work, gave him $100,000 of, of investment arm uh, of uh, support. And you know, he later on became, you know, uh, founded Xiaomi. So, uh, you know, I feel like I, I've had a little contribution that that kind of shaped kind of the path of, of how the market went there. Um, but, you know, really uh, exciting. And, and I was able to, uh, both myself and our organization, uh, receive the um, Intel Achievement Award for, uh, for helping essentially open up the China uh, consumer market. And you know, by the time I left, we had 10,000 of these small mom and pop shops that were selling PCs for 50 RMB profit instead of what used to be 500 US dollar profit that the channels were, were charging in, in the, uh, the, the larger chain stores. Intel has been rather successful in China. Now, it does not do media. You know, it does not do essentially e-commerce. It powers just about all of it, but it yeah. it's not the consumer facing public facing it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have that impact as as a company how was intel you know and and i mean i may have alluded to it just in saying those things but we saw microsoft google facebook you know they they all struggled mightily going to china Intel seems to have done very well. Could you maybe speak to uh, a little bit about what I'm talking about, about why some yeah. of those companies back then um, struggled and why was Intel able to be successful? Well, I, I think that the, the key to the Chinese government philosophy about foreign companies is they want to have uh, technology transfer. And uh, Intel was actually very supportive of this. Uh, in fact, I, I had, I had uh, hosted and, and, and when I was translating for for Andy Grove when he came visit a few times um, with some of the government officials, 
and uh, you know, they really treated him as a dignitary. I mean, when he landed at the airport, they had you know, uh, essentially police behind and in front of them. They had all the lights, you know, turned green so he never had to stop anywhere. You know, so it's a uh, you know, he he got very good treatment uh, in terms of um, being respected as as a as a leader and. In turn, you know, uh, Intel actually built multiple um, assembly and test uh, sites, uh, factories uh, in the in the country. And I think for for China, that was an important step to have a global leader in semiconductors building uh, and constructing things in their in their country, as well as educating a workforce. Right? And as you know, these days, how important it is to uh, have more semiconductor know-how. Uh, in China, in fact, that's one of the issues today that that's causing some of the problems with you know Huawei and ZTE in the last few years. So um, I think the fact that that Intel looked at it as a as a cooperative model that hey, I'm willing to share stuff with you. Uh, although you know assembling tests is kind of the last step. It's, it's actually the the least technical step uh, of the semiconductor um, process. Um, but it's still actually building a factory there and, and, you know, having supporting jobs was a very important um, sign of, of uh, cooperation. And I think the Chinese government appreciated that. After those days, I, I want to jump to the time when you started creating a social networking app called Guanxi. So I think it would be apropos for you to explain what what Guanxi is. We we have talked about it on the on the podcast. It comes up a lot when oh, talking really? about you know how to do, um, you know, just the the word and the meaning, right? How how yeah. to do business, uh, you know, in China mm-hmm. and, and the importance of it. So you know, it's named after the concept uh, that we've talked a lot about on this show in the past. So please uh, tell us about the app, and, you know, what it aimed to do and and whatnot. What was the process like in building a social networking app? Inside of China, I would imagine that maybe it wasn't as regulated back then. Maybe it's a little bit more regulated now. What you were facing, what you were going through, because you were really at the forefront of doing social networking. Like you know, at at the same time that it was starting to go everywhere else, you were doing it in 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 China. And then you know, maybe talk about one or the two novel features that made the app unique. I know because I've used them, but I want you to explain them. And then what's the current status? You know, is it uh, is it still alive? Guanxi, just to give a little context, essentially is the, the, the concept of relationship and, and making sure that relationships are important in, in uh, doing any kind of business, right? And, and this is the, the, the importance of Guanxi is that China is a very low trust society. And in a low trust society, the only thing that you have is the, uh, the relationship you build and to be able to leverage off of other people's relationships to be able to create uh, bridges for you. Right. So that, that's the idea of Guanxi. Um, but, um, so, so the, the Guanxi product actually started out not as a social networking product, but as a search product. It was a, a search and information, uh, retrieval, uh, service. It started out as a, as a SMS service where you essentially text a message that says, you know, where is this restaurant or where, what's the weather or where's this bar? And it would give you back, uh, the answers, uh, and kind of like what Siri does today. Uh, but, uh, you know, back in 2005. Um, so the, the, uh, in fact, I, I, the question was the, the English service. And then we had a Chinese service called MInfo. Uh, they were both similar products. Um, one was serving more, the question at that time was more serving the, the expat community with, uh, English 
based uh, search. It was actually the only English-based SMS search system uh, in the country. <laughs> um, so uh, pretty much every expat was using it uh, across the country in, in all the major cities. Um, and we would essentially charge you know one RMB uh, per per request per request. And uh, it, was, it was an interesting. Um, uh, business model. Uh, at that point, the 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 FP service was uh, quite popular. Uh, it's called essentially service provider model for SMS, where you get an FP license and then you can essentially charge uh, for different uh, value-added services. Um, and you know, uh, I guess there, there are certain requirements like you have to have 10 million RMB of of, of uh, you know uh, outstanding capital or uh, or o opening um, enterprise and capital. To be able to to get a SP license, so it was it was a very um, arduous process to get the licenses. But once you have it, um, it, it does give you certain rights um, to to operate and to work with all the carriers. And you know, working with carriers in general is just a, a pain in the ass, and they keep changing the policies. And um, but um, you know, it, it was fairly lucrative for a while, uh, and then later on, um, essentially we we migrated the the, the name. To additionally adding in the, the social networking capabilities, so that was kind of the, the phase two uh, when the FP type services started to to wane. Uh, and Minfo at the time, I think you had mentioned this a little bit as well. Um, was uh, we had worked with all the Chinese carriers. All three Chinese carriers were actually using Minfo uh, as their Chinese search system to replace operator systems to replace kind of the four one one system. Uh, and China is actually one one four. Um, but, um, essentially you can, uh, so we were, we were replacing about 70% of the phone calls that used to get, so they could reduce their, their, uh, operator staff significantly, uh, in, in their call centers. And, uh, we actually initially wanted it to be more of an advertising driven model, but, uh, you know, they keep putting restrictions on us and not letting us have the data not letting us take the data out. We, we had dozens of people and, and all the carriers operating these services um, and operating the servers and, and, and the, the intelligence because, you know, it was, it was a fairly natural language system. And, uh, you know, we were a little bit of ahead of our time <laughs> in terms of doing uh, kind of AI driven natural language uh, response systems. Um, and it, it was, it had, it had memory. So you could actually do multi-stage where you could say, you know, uh, what are some good restaurants in, in Shanghai? And then it would give you, you know, the top five and then you would, you know, pick one, two or three. And, you know, you can actually have multiple, multiple levels of, uh, of interaction. Uh, and, um, yeah, so it, it was, uh, it was, a uh, very, uh, I guess innovative at the time. Um, you know, now the, the I guess the company that in the kind of uh, after about seven eight years, we we you know some of it we sold off. Uh, actually, it was most of it we we sold off to different players, uh, and uh, also had I had converted M Info into also a, a marketing company. We were doing um, uh, essentially advertising mobile advertising campaigns when when three G started to hit and kind of text message became less important. We started to migrate into doing. Uh, mobile marketing services and working with all the major agencies and brands, uh, helping them create apps, create mobile sites, uh, create real-time campaigns, uh, doing essentially uh, SMS, uh, mass messaging, those types of services. Um, so it, it was a, a, a real journey going through those uh, you know 10, 10 plus years of uh, 
you know, running that, that company and seeing it grow in, in different ways. You're also the founder, and you've been the founder of a lot of things. You're the founder of Minfo as well, which was a mobile search and advertising solutions platform that was the mobile search provider for the 2008 Olympic Games. So that actually ties in nicely with a lot of podcasts we've been doing lately on the show because of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing for 2022. Perhaps you could first introduce Minfo and what it aimed to do, what it was. And then given that we have the Olympics coming up shortly, maybe you could tell us a little bit of what it's like, maybe uh, almost a foreshadowing or forecasting what it's like working with the IOC uh, and, and, you know, and the Beijing Olympic Committee, although it's probably drastically different at this point from a technology capacity, at least, you know, I know 2008 versus 2022, all that technology will have, you know, turned over several times at this point. But at this stage, what did the preparations look like in 2008? And what do you think organizers are looking to get, looking to get up to as they get ready for 2022? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I remember working with them uh, and it was, it was, you know, one of the most painful things we've ever done as a company because uh, uh, I guess they, they see it as a privilege for any service provider or technology provider to be associated with the, the, the Olympics name. In most cases, you know, companies would have to pay millions of dollars just to be involved. Uh, fortunately, at the time, there was really uh, very few companies that could do uh, the type of services that we were doing um, in terms of mobile search and in terms of natural language capabilities and working across multiple phones and, you know, this and that. Uh, so, you know, we, we were able to get, we, win this contract uh, without having to pay anything. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was, uh, six months plus of a custom, essentially development for them. And everything was highly secure. Our, our people had to go into their data centers to, to, to access the, uh, the, the, the services. And, and, uh, it was also in partnership with China Mobile. So, uh, because China Mobile was one of the main, um, uh, technology t- providers and we were, then, you know, helping and working with China Mobile to, to deliver it out. Um, so it, it was a real honor for us. And I think our, our team felt that uh, as well in the sense of being um, chosen as the provider for them. Um, but it was it was just really painful because they, they had a lot of requirements, a lot of security requirements, a lot of capacity requirements that, uh, you know, at the time was just in some cases unreasonable. <laughs> but uh, but we, we, you know, we did what we can to try to, support their their needs um and you know with search in general in china it's also a lot of sensitivity in terms of responses so you know we had to get all of our uh response databases and algorithms be audited by their security team and and, and kind of uh, both audited it and also uh, uh censored or, or reviewed to make sure there was nothing sensitive in, in the the responses um but um you know i i think they they see it as really uh it's a, a show to the world of, you know, the, the, the power and might and, and prestige of, of China, um, in, in doing a, a, an event like this. So, uh, you know, you, there just can't be any mistakes, right? Or any, any errors or anything, any downtime. So it, it's just a, a very, very, um, uh, demanding for any, any partner that, uh, would work with them. Um, but, you know, uh, I think at the end of the day, it, it was something that, that we were glad we did and, and uh, it made us a better team because if you can meet the requirements of, of the uh, the Beijing Olympic uh, team and their their uh, their audit team, 
then you can pretty much uh, service any any customer out there. <laughs> I wanted to move over to talking a little bit more broadly about mobile internet marketing or just internet marketing yeah. in general. You've been in the mobile game for decades now. I'm wondering if you can help our audience understand what internet marketing looked like 20 years ago and the impact mobile has had on it since the late 2000s. When we started that, it was really just SMS spam, right? I mean, I mean, to, to, I guess a little bit too bluntly, but uh, you know, we we you know we would find different ways to get phone numbers of, of people, and you can buy lists, and you can, but uh, there was very little uh, in, the, in the order of targeting. You know, there was no mobile um, web at the time, and uh, very little data driven. You know, the most we can get back to people were really looking at. Like, you know, how many people clicked on or responded, replied to the messages that were, uh, that were being sent. It wasn't really even click because there was nothing for them to click to. It was more for them to respond <clears throat> to, um, to different offers, right? Whether to call a number or whether to, uh, reply an SMS. Um, and, you know, after a while, we, we actually, um, did start to, to get more scientific in terms of, of gathering different types of users, be able to, to, to segment the different databases and um, uh, and, and consolidate you know customers uh, of of multiple of our customers into a giant database and then be able to do cross segmenting um, and then it moved on to kind of when mobile internet started happening we started to do more uh, web linking and and uh, you know mobile banners uh, and then and then later on the app came and then essentially helping create create uh, apps for people and. And, uh, you know, helping do, uh, mobile store rankings, you know, helping people sell more, um, get more downloads. You know, at, at every step, there was a different, different, uh, kind of key customer base and a different pricing model. You know, and so it, it was, uh, uh, you know, it's been so, that's such a long time. Actually, I, I've been out of the kind of mobile marketing space for probably seven, eight, nine years now. So, um, but, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's constantly changing and, you know, getting just smarter now. Now I think everything is all AI driven. There's very little people involved and, you know, um, but there's the whole time you always have to worry about, um, uh, kind of, yeah, I guess fake data out there or fake responses or, um, you know, so from, from a both a advertiser and a, a an intermediate service provider perspective, it's something that, uh, you know, is a constant issue. Um, and, and I think in China, it's probably even more, uh, blatant in some areas than, than maybe in other markets. So, um, so you, you always kind of have to keep a, uh, a wary eye for what data looks reasonable and doesn't and, and keep testing it. And, um, you know, cause there's, there's always people out there, in, including some of the, you know, the carriers or, or, or secondary partners that you work with. That are trying to uh, just get a, a few extra dollars uh, out of uh, these campaigns. Could you also really quickly maybe just cover your thoughts and experiences on those early days of e-commerce? I know that you know we had the smartphone. Well, they had the iPhone was released what two thousand seven. You know something like this, and it, we're going to talk about mobile uh, as well here. It's it's just what was the catalyst to get, what was it, 400 million, 500 million people in the internet who previously weren't uh, in such a short amount of time. And then beyond that, obviously retail can't keep up with, you know, if you're going to start advertising to people 
certain products, they would then need to have access to them. But retail can't possibly grow at the rate that those getting on the internet would then potentially want to go purchase something. So then, you know, and what I'm leading up to here is e-commerce. So I know you mentioned you've been out of it for, you know, six, seven years or something, but those early days must have been absolutely fantastic. Maybe a little rough around the edges, but would have been such a fun rodeo to be a part of. So maybe you can talk to us just a little bit about those early days of e-commerce, how and why it took off so fast, um, and what were the factors that really just helped it grow? Yeah, I mean, I think you you already alluded to a little bit, and you know, just that there's so many people in China, and and you know, not everybody at the time had PCs. I think even today, um, but you know, when phones started becoming part of that, I mean, even before the phones, the the, the PCs were already uh, an important uh, part of the e-commerce. And I remember uh, when when Taobao uh, was coming out, and, uh, and eBay at the time, eBay and Taobao were both were both in the market. Uh, and, and at first, actually, eBay was was ahead of Taobao, uh, but then Taobao kept allowing people to to post stuff and not charge any fees. Uh, and you know, and, and I'm sure a lot a lot of your readers or, or listeners uh, or, or kind of know the, the Alibaba story and kind of beginning how they essentially you know bought their own products and just you know kind of created that initial flow. I think with with any any uh, kind of network based. Uh, you know, uh, Type of, of an offering, you need to have a, a certain amount of of users and and uh, and transactions for it to, to really take off. But um, you know, it, it took a little while actually. Um, but um, you know, I just I think one of the things that that really helped it was actually the the SARS uh, the SARS uh, epidemic because the SARS epidemic uh, kept everybody at home. And and because it kept people at home, uh, they had to buy stuff, uh, and and that actually helped to spur some of the initial uh, initial online commerce uh, pieces. So it you know it it actually didn't take off as, as quickly as a lot of people think. Um, but um, but you know the, the scale is now just amazing because there's just so many people, and and the the amount of spending on it, the amount of uh, I, I guess the amount of, of wealth in, in individual families is actually surprising, considering uh, you know a lot of people still see China as a you know second or even third world type country. I mean, there are certain parts of of, um, of the country that are actually still fairly uh, behind. Right, if you go to the fourth or fifth tier type cities, um, but you know there, there's a very very large um, kind of uh, I guess middle middle level income. Um, uh, population and and you know the the, the high income folks are are just as uh, well off as uh, you know places like the states already. So um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, it just <laughs> it, it's it's been uh, kind of amazing just to see go through with this the growth factor here. I want to move to talking about VR, and then we're going to talk about metaverse. Uh, so this is going to be really fun. Now, VR, now we're, we're really starting to get into what, what you've really been doing a lot about lately. So please introduce HTC Vive and your role at HTC China. You know, let's, let's start with uh, from a product development side. How do VR companies have to localize for the Chinese market? And what about content development localization? Yeah, so uh, right now I'm the China president for HTC, uh, kind of running both the, the VR and, and what used to be our phone business. But our, our, our phone business is pretty much about two years ago, we, we've uh, stopped selling phones in China. Um, but uh, we also have 
a uh, app store. We also have a lot of other operations in China as well. Um, in addition to that, I'm also the uh, the vice chair for the Industry of VR Alliance. It's the only uh, official kind of government recognized organization for VR industry uh, companies. There's about 300 companies, including pretty much all the major, both international and Chinese companies in in the world. Um, and I'm also the president of the VRVCA, the Virtual Reality Venture Capital Alliance, um, with uh, is about 50 VCs that invest in the, the VR space, VR AR space. Um, so I, I kind of, I guess, have been very fortunate to see the, the VR market grow the last you know, six years or so that I've, I've been part of this. Uh, and, and the funny thing is I actually studied uh, VR back in uh, Washington in 1991 with uh, Tom Furness, who's the, recognized as the, the godfather of, of VR. And he's been you know, working in this industry for about 60 years. <laughs> um, so, um, but this, this, I think, uh, what, what we're seeing right now is really what you just mentioned is a really important point is that COVID has really accelerated the interest, uh, in, uh, in this VR industry because, uh, people are now recognizing that, hey, this remote work actually is, is, is you're able to be productive. You're able to eliminate a lot of business travel, but having a video only interaction just doesn't feel personal enough. So, so VR is actually a good alternative to, um, to help enhance that, that sense of, of being together, right? And particularly, in fact, just uh, about a month ago, um, uh, Accenture announced that they had, you know, they had onboarded about 150,000 new employees last year, and they gave out 60,000 headsets to their employees to allow them to interact with each other because a lot of these staff have never met each other, have never met anybody else at the company <laughs> because they, they, their offices were closed. And, and I think that's actually a really good uh, example of how uh, you know applying this new technology can really help to impact the real world and, and how we used to see uh, our, our, our you know, relationships with our colleagues. And, um, but you know, at the same time, it can also be applied to schools. It can be applied to the social side as well. So, um, you know, and in China, uh, you know, HTC has been the, 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 the kind of key leader in this space for the last six years since I've been here. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not only, uh, a hardware provider, we also provide uh, the store to all the lo local Chinese um, partners, including the Chinese carriers. We just signed a deal with China Mobile to um, to provide our store to them so that they can then provide it to their customers. And all of the local manufacturers actually use our store. Uh, we also give them our, our um, runtime, um, our software runtime kind of operating system uh, to allow them to get get their products out to market faster and their, the development tools and even some of the controller kits uh, to really en enable uh, what some people would consider our competition because we feel like it's important for there to be multiple vendors that can support different uh, tiers of products at different price points. And, you know, we're, we're, we're focused on providing kind of the mid to higher tier products that we, we can feel proud to have our name on. But there's a lot of customers that may not be able to afford it. And so we, you know, support the local vendors who can also kind of support that low tier uh, solution as well. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it's an industry. I, I think China is definitely going to be at the forefront of this industry and uh, the ability of the government to, to kind of enforce and, and move the industry in, in certain ways 
were actually accelerated, uh, I think, ahead of a lot of other markets in the world. Yeah, I want to talk about the perception of VR in China. But first, I have another question I want to throw at you first. What are some of the coolest, most innovative, stretching the boundaries of the mind examples of VR that you just think are are just awesome that you can point to today? Well, I don't know about stretching the mind, but I, think there's <laughs> I may have been a little overzealous yeah. with the adjectives, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the the funny thing is, all the all the cases out there today are things that we've seen in in you know, sci fi movies for the last you know thirty, forty, fifty years. They're just becoming real, and now they they don't feel special anymore because it's like, oh yeah, wasn't that part of that movie or wasn't that part of that novel? Um, so a lot of it is actually, you know, let's say, you know, doing virtual surgery so that, you know, uh, surgeons or, or medical students don't kill anybody when, when they're, when they're doing their first surgery, right? That's, that's happening today. You know, we have, uh, you know, the biggest driving school in China, uh, they, they graduate about a quarter million students a year and they're using our devices to train all of these students so that they can see all the occasions that they won't see in the real world where, you know, they might, you know, crash in the back of a truck or a dog jumps out in front of them, or you're in a snow situation or, you know, whatever, where to simulate that, there's just no way to do it in, in real world training, but to do that in, in VR allows these students to be much more confident and then they can go and take their test and then they're passing at like double the, the success rate uh, as they would if they were just doing, you know, uh, regular kind of um in in car driving and and paperwork right so just a lot of it is um it's psychological you know it's being used uh with uh you know therapy where people are using it to get around post-traumatic stress or harassment or with you know some some banks we're working with are doing uh customer training where they have these super obnoxious customers come in and how how do they keep their their staff calm as you're dealing with these customers. And when you're seeing them face to face, it's uh, in a VR device, it's so much different than when you're, when you're just, you know, reading about it or seeing it on the video, because you actually feel like you're interacting with that, uh, that customer. And, and, and in fact, sometimes you can flip it backwards. You can say, uh, let's say on a harassment uh, type training, we could turn you into a woman or we could turn you into, uh, you know, a, 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 the, the person being arrested by a police. And, and that changes your per, per, uh, perception. So we were doing uh, police training um, with some of our, of our software where, uh, you know, you're essentially being arrested by multiple uh, large policemen and, you know, being thrown around. And you now as a police officer now feel what it's like to be on the other side. And that helps them to then have more empathy when they uh, deal with, uh, with you know, potential uh, convicts or whatever they're the people they're they're they're, uh, they're they're dealing with. So uh, it's um, a lot of it doesn't sound like the super snazzy, exciting you know go to Mars stuff, which which we can also do. You know, any we can let any student you know take a trip to a field trip to Mars or to underwater or to the you know ancient Egypt. I mean, those those are kind of fun things that that are happening. Um, you know, we also, uh, you know, we've invested in companies that do brain computer interface. You put this thing on and it can, you can think of something and it'll actually, you know, uh, move your, uh, character on, on the screen or, or you can, uh, you know, think of a word and it'll type it out for you, right? This technology is, is, is available today. You can have these, these haptic gloves that, 
you can feel a little spider walking on on your hand as you see it. You know, so th th there's just amazing stuff out there. And uh, in fact, I, one thing that I think is actually kind of super cool is, um, you know, about a year ago, I, I tried on this contact lens that allows you to essentially put a lens in your eyes, and it, and it gives you a a display where you're you're seeing, uh, you know, essentially what you would see on a, on a screen. And it's not as high resolution. But to have a device that's that thin and, and that light and to be able to, to have the full functionality of a high-resolution display, uh, that stuff is available now, right? So it's just a matter of time when that gets to a price point where it becomes uh, affordable. Um, you know, there are also devices right now that you can get essentially retinal-level um, uh, resolution where you put this on and the, the, the video that's coming in uh, that you're seeing uh, the display content, both the CG display as well as the video pass-through display, is uh, supposedly equivalent. There's still you can still see some differences, but I would say near, uh, you know, retinal level uh, clarity. Uh, and on you know a few thousand dollar devices, and then you know in a few years they'll they'll get down to a few hundred dollars. So I'm I'm just uh, just you know super amazed in terms of and, and every every area of this of this industry, there's innovations happening. You know, I remember my, my first VR device, it was, you know, about a two and a half kilogram device with multiple wires. And I had, you know, uh, it was like 200 by 300 resolution. Now we're selling, a, and that device sold for about, you know, several hundred thousand dollars and was powered by uh, a, uh, a work, you know, I think it was a, know, a bank of computers. So it was a big workstation. I can't remember which one, but, you know, a multiple, multi hundred thousand dollar workstation. But now, you know, that, that same device that we're selling for $500 is, um, you know, 10 times lighter, and actually like 15 times lighter, 100 times better resolution, and one four hundredth the price. <laughs> so, you know, and so this, this, you can see that very soon we're going to get to a level where we're going to uh, have a device on our head that essentially replaces every single screen we have in our lives. And in fact, replaces every single jack gadget that we have in our lives in terms of communicating and computing gadgets. So, uh, so that's that's where the world is going, and it and it's going to come faster than a lot of people think. Do you think there is a difference in perception of VR here in the West versus that of in China? And this may this may be a non-starter of a question, but I'll ask it anyway. We have hardcore technologists that have really embraced it as an important part of our future society on one hand, but it it, it hasn't. I, I think we all thought it was really going to just go gangbusters four or five years ago, but it was a bit of a slower burn than I think a lot of people thought. So I would love your your take on why it has actually just taken a little bit longer. It stayed on the trajectory and it is now here to stay for sure, but it didn't come as fast as we all thought. So, uh, you know, certainly not like smartphones or something. And, and maybe that was a, a perception that skewed what we thought of how VR, even AR was going to go. But what would you say the perception is of VR in China versus that in the West? And uh, maybe your thoughts on why it did take a little bit longer to, to really kind of get that traction. So actually, I, I want to go back to something you just said is that you're not as opposed to smartphones. So a lot of people think of, uh, you know, kind of the 2015-16 as, as the iPhone moment. I actually think it is not the iPhone moment. That the 2015 or 16 is the car phone moment. 
right? Because if you, if you look at the devices, then it was devices that had multiple wires. You had to connect it to another big device. You, you know, you're always constantly tethered and uh, it costs thousands of dollars, <laughs> right? So it, it was not the iPhone. Or in fact, even smartphones, you know, when did smartphones really start? It wasn't the iPhone. Uh, it was, you know, kind of the, uh, like more the, uh, the Palm Pilot type era, right? You know, kind of 2000, 2005, you started having these, you know, smart Nokia phones and, and then it became the Windows CE phones. And then it was the Blackberry and then it was the iPhone, right? So it's the, even the smartphones took about 15, 20 years for it to really take off. And, and so if we take the same perspective of how long did it take the, 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 the mobile phone industry to, to, to take off, uh, this, Going from kind of the car phone to now, now I would say we're, we're very close to the iPhone moment for, for VR. In fact, you know, devices this year is going to be in the 10 to 15 million units a year. The first iPhone, uh, when it was sold the first year, it sold, I think about, uh, 6 million units, right? So, so this is, this is now actually to that same scale. And I think what we're going to find is in the next few years, we are going to get into the, the 100 million or more units. Uh, very soon. And at that point, you're going to get uh, it to really ramp up very, very quickly. So but I think it's a little bit unfair to say, hey, 2015, why didn't it take off? Uh, you know, myself included, I think we were over optimistic in terms of, of saying, you know, this this is uh, ready for prime time. It, it was the fact that it had to be tied to a, you know, thousand plus, you know, multi-thousand dollar computer uh, and had wires on it. Uh, really kept it from becoming something that could be mainstream. But uh, you know, now we last you know, month ago we just released our our uh, new Vive Flow product, which is a glasses form factor uh, that has full six degrees of freedom, is wireless, and uh, you know, looks kind of cool, right? Compared to having a box on your head. So now I think we're we're, we're starting to get there. And you know, if you if you look at the technologies that are going to be part of the devices in the next few years. Uh, we will get to thin and light, you know, kind of normal glasses form factors in the next few years. And then when that happens, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of units a year will be uh, uh, kind of right around the corner. So, um, and I think for, for China, it's actually been a different trajectory, but but it hasn't also take off, taken off as much as I think a lot of people expected as well. It just took a different um, path to get there. Uh, in, in the U.S., it's been very game and consumer focused. Uh, but in, in China, it's been very business to business focused. So about 78% of our devices are being sold to businesses who are buying it to have better competitiveness in the marketplace. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it's, you know, mostly bought for by consumers to play games. Uh, but, you know, in the, in, in the next few years, both of these markets will start to intertwine, just like smartphones today. If you say, you know, is a smartphone for business or is it, is it for consumer use? It's actually both. Right. We're going to have one device we use for VR, we use for AR. We're going to have that same device will be used for business and will be used for, for home use or consumer, you know, normal life use. So all, all the distinctions that we're, we're putting into the market uh, today, we'll, those lines will blur uh, very quickly. What do you foresee as being the most popular advances, technologies, anything that you want to say? What, where is the world of VR going to go in the next five to 10 years? Uh, I mean, I kind of alluded to that a little bit. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to essentially every area of, of, um, the interface will get better. We'll get more real. We'll get more natural, right? Right now we're using, 
you know, controllers and, you know, very soon. In fact, some, some devices already today allow you to do hand tracking, uh, eye tracking, uh, voice, mouth, face tracking, as well as full body tracking. So very soon, all the interactions you have in, in these virtual worlds will be using the same kind of expressions that you use in the real world, which is how it should be, right? So essentially, anybody of any age uh, can put on these devices and, and just behave as they do in the real world. And they will see something that looks very much as almost as real as the real world. I think that that's coming. Um, you know, the devices will get thinner, will get lighter, will get cheaper, uh, just like all technologies uh, seem to continue doing. Um, and, you know, I think the the integration to the, the cloud will be more and more important. Right? right now, most of the computing is actually happening on the device. Uh, what we will find is that uh, the concept of kind of network computing, which I remember back in 1998, I was uh, working with Intel and, and Sun Computers on the the, the net computer, the, the Java-based computer, and you know, at the time it was all about doing all the processing on the net and having a very thin client. That will actually now come back because you don't want that processing when it's on your head. You don't want a big battery. You don't want a lot of heat. You don't want a lot of processing. You want it all to be on the network. And that's also going to be uh, more and more important uh, as, we, uh, as, as these devices start to mature. And you want them to be very low power and low heat, and, uh, and since you're going to have to wear them all day. It's time to talk about the metaverse. <laughs> now, people still don't really know what it will look like, but it seems like one of those core technologies um, that's also featured in the in the metaverse will be VR, so uh, you're the perfect person to talk to about this. Now, you've said that the metaverse expands, not replaces the internet. What do you mean by that? So, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, the, the metaverse is the next version of the Internet. And I, I agree with that. But I think it's important to understand that the old Internet, the 2D Internet, does not go away. Right? I, I actually see the metaverse as essentially the Internet of today. We expanded to be using creating 3D and looking and interacting with 3D content and then using a immersive device like a VR or AR device uh, to then fully, uh, I guess, um, appreciate or, or, or to, to experience these 3D content. But at the same time, you know, these 3D devices can be used to experience 2D content. I can, I can put on a headset and watch a movie. I can put on a headset and, and, and look at a web, web page. And same thing, I could use a, a phone or a PC still to interact with the metaverse. It's the internet, it's the content, it's the network. And it is not, it's not uh, exclusive to, to being used on a, on a VR device. So you could still use your keyboard and mouse just like you do a, a 3D video game today and walk through these virtual worlds. Uh, even on a 2D device, it just won't be as immersive, but it is something that will be possible. And, and it has to be possible because you need, this metaverse needs to be something that is completely open, that anybody can get into using any device and it has to be a global standard so that, you know, that, so that interoperable across different countries, uh, across different operating systems or different brands. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the, the, the idea behind it. And we, we should not see it as, as something that will, that will, uh, replace, uh, the, the existing internet. The existing internet people have spent the last 20 years building. It will continue to be a very important part of, uh, people's saving lives for, for a long time. From where you're sitting, 
what do you think the role of VR will be in in the future metaverse? Uh, and what type of work are you doing, uh, especially at HTC, to help make that happen? Well, I, I think v, VR will be the main interface we have to the metaverse. And, and, you know, just like today, um, you know, uh, more and more of your hours are being uh, interfaced instead of on a computer. It's going to be moving to, you know, using a phone. And I spend probably five, six hours a day on my phone, uh, you know, like you're saying, working and you know, communicating. Um, and, and less hours actually on my PC. It used to be I would spend, you know, probably five, six hours a day on my PC. Now I spend maybe two hours a day on my PC and five hours on my phone. In the near future, I think we're going to see that we're going to spend somewhere between probably 10 to 15 hours a day uh, on our on our device on our head. And that device, you know, sometimes will be in a pass-through mode, so it'll be kind of an AR device, but a lot of the time it will be in a in a um uh a VR mode where you're in a completely different environment than you are physically. Uh and if you need to look at a screen, you can create multiple virtual screens. And uh, you know, it will be the main way that you interact with uh, other people both you know, in your city, as well as in your office, as well as in your class, you know, and people who are completely on the other side of the world. Uh, people will actually choose to use this as their main way to to connect um, and their main way to consume content. So instead of, you know, going in front of a TV screen, I probably just, you know, turn on the TV app on my uh, uh, on my headset and be able to watch, you know, a TV or actually maybe even go into the space if I'm watching a, you know, a football game, I could actually be on the 50 yard line and feeling like I'm actually at the environment and seeing and hearing the crowds around me instead of just watching a screen that's a you know 60 or 50 inch screen that's you know three or four six feet from me. Right. So it it, it will definitely be uh, our most important uh, kind of technology device and interacting interaction device think that it is going to be different at all across greater China due to either, you know, more fragmented internet landscape, fragmented internet user uh, demographic, or completely different regulatory environment? Are any of those going to impact metaverse in China versus rest of the world? I actually think that the world will move through multiple phases in the development of the metaverse. And you know we're we're kind of in phase zero right now where people are talking about the metaverse, but there's there's really no metaverse yet. There's just a lot of independent little games and apps and and uh, tools out there. Uh, but everybody calls themselves a metaverse, um, and they are completely they don't communicate at all between each other. Uh, in the next year or two, I think you will start to see some intercommunication between them, and some of them will have you know a single sign-on or common login. Um, you know when this gets mature you will actually have kind of a single ID with a single identity, single avatar uh, that maybe you would change your clothes or something uh, when you go to these different worlds and single currency that allows you to purchase and be able to uh, create value and then a single kind of NFT or asset verification system uh, to allow you to to bring whatever, uh, you know, assets that you've, you've created or bought uh, through your life with you uh, to these different worlds. Right. And I think that will actually the, the, the combination of these things happening in a in a global perspective will take longer. But for that to happen in China will happen much faster because of the centralized uh, control and regulatory system that's in China, where, you know, essentially the, the, the Chinese government say, OK, instead of having all this debate, 
We're going to use the digital RMB as your major currency. We're going to use your your Simpsons ID as your your universal ID, and you know we're going to use some some kind of a a centralized uh, NFT system as your asset system. Uh, and all the companies who operate in China, you guys will have to uh, uh, implement this within the next two months. And within two months, it will happen, and then everybody will be able to 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 interoperate uh, and and have a feeling of of jumping between worlds, between apps, uh, you know, having that that seamless interaction. Um, but over the long term, I think then there will be an integration of the global internet or the global metaverse with the with the Chinaverse. Right. Uh, I think that's the ultimate destination is that it will then go back to from, from multiple to a few to maybe two, two kind of separate universes to then a single uh, universe. Because at the end of the day, you know, China is still part of this global society uh, and uh, there will be bridges created that then translate the, the currencies or identities between them. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, China cannot be a, an island upon itself. So I think that's that's what you know the path that we're going to take. But the, the China verse happening will probably happen, uh, I would say, multiple years ahead of the global uh, interoperable metaverse happening. You've said that you expect China to likely be the first country with a near full metaverse experience. Yeah, and I'm wondering if some of what you were just saying is is actually just alluding to almost the answer of this question, but I'll ask it anyway. I'm curious on two points about that. What does a full, quote unquote, full metaverse experience mean? And why are you thinking that China would be the first country to have one? Yeah, so I think I I kind of just alluded to that already in terms of a full metaverse experience being that I can take my single identity, go to multiple worlds. I can, you know, uh, have assets go across the world. I can have, my my avatar be be fully interoperable. Um, I can have uh, essentially any device be able to be interoperable um, and have a a fully uh, I guess having the ability to fully interactive in all of these areas. Um, that's something that does not that does not exist today anywhere. Right, uh, but the fact that China can regulate it will allow it to happen much faster. What do you predict for 2022 and the coming decade for XR, VR, and multiverse? 2022 will be a very important year for for the metaverse uh, space, and, and there will be a lot more clarity and, and and a lot less hype than there is today. People will start to understand what it really is instead of just having being confused about it. And there will be organizations that start to uh, try to create this this unity that that needs to happen, uh, and and governments will start to to probably talk about some regulations. Uh, you know, the, the next ten or you know five or ten years, I, I think the, the key is is really, uh, the, you know, the world will move more and more to VR being the main device uh, that we interact with, and the metaverse will be the main channel, the main interface, the main content source, the main income source for a lot of people in the world, and most business will happen on it, just like right now, most things are gonna be dependent on the internet. Uh, just about every business will be dependent on uh, this metaverse within the you know, five to 10 year period. So uh, it, it, we, we definitely live in, live in amazing times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, VR and AR will be very important uh, as part of that, 
uh, that, uh, the path to get there. And, you know, hopefully your listeners can spend more time kind of understanding both the metaverse and, uh, the devices that will power it. But, um, yeah, th- thanks again, Todd. So for all you content creators in the audience, you've been warned, start getting your multiverse game going and, and start uh, creating content for the VR and, and metaverse, uh, world, get a, get a jump on the, on the next TikToks. Uh, that's, that's where it's going to be. Alvin, uh, old friend, thank you very, very much for coming on the show and doing this with me today. It's been an absolute blast and hopefully it's, uh, not very long before we get to do it again. Yes, absolutely. Thanks again for inviting me, Todd. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jian.